thanks, Sam. Well, it's great to be up here again this evening, uh, looking at the second half of the first chapter in Paul's letter to the Philippians with you. I just wanted to mention as well that I will be um, giving you a time to ask questions at the end using slido.com. So if you have any questions uh, through uh, the sermon about this passage, feel free to use slido.com with the hashtag HBSP, and I'll uh, have a look at them after the sermon. Now, if you Google the 10 most controversial questions ever, you will get a list of questions that constantly cause serious disagreement and even can lead to violence. Some of these questions are capable of starting full-blown wars, and some of them have actually caused acts of terrorism as well. And so when I googled the 10 most controversial questions ever, at the top of the list, the first one there was this question. Is there life after death? According to Google, that's the most controversial question ever. Is there life after death? Last week, I wanted us to consider how what we experience here and now is insignificant in comparison to the advance and splendor of the gospel. The gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, God's promised plan for us, for our salvation through his son's death, resurrection, and ascension. Paul reminds this church in Philippi that from the very first day until now, partnership in the gospel and its proclamation has been the key to their maturity. Tonight, we are to realize how our hopes and dreams, our aspirations, are insignificant in comparison to the future we have with Christ. And as we saw last week, this too leads Paul to rejoice. And so Paul reassures us together that we can rejoice because of what we will receive when we are with Christ. Even though we might feel like persevering in our faith here and now is hard, Paul wants us to know that it will be worth it in the end. And so today we are going to look at the most controversial question ever. Is there life after death? And not only is there life after death, but what awaits us is far better than anything we have experienced here and now. So let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, help us to be open to your word which is before us this evening. Give us ears to hear and confidence to live it out. Help us to do so for your glory and honor and praise. In your son's name we pray. <coughs> Amen. Now I haven't told many people this story, but when I had my accident, which was seven years ago now, uh, I was put in an induced coma and rushed to St. George Hospital. And I was kept in a coma while they operated on me. And while I was in that coma, I can remember thinking to myself, I had died. 
and I can remember seeing a bright light and it was just like in the movies, just what you would expect. This bright light and it seemed to be getting closer to me. And as it started getting closer to me and brighter, I thought to myself, I can remember thinking, I wonder if what I have believed all these years is actually true. And it wasn't that I was wondering whether or not I would finally get to the final destination in heaven, but I was interested to see what would actually happen. What would it be like for us? What do we have in store for us in heaven? Because when we search the scriptures to determine what happens after death, we find that it leaves much to our imagination. There is very little described about life after death in the Bible. And so I couldn't wait. I, I could finally figure, understand. I could, I could see what was in store for us. And the light got brighter and brighter. And as it got brighter and brighter, I realized that I wasn't dying. I wasn't dead. Quite the opposite. I was still alive. And I was just waking up. In fact, my life was being saved. My life was not over. And I was a little bit disappointed. <laughs> and in a way, my disappointment reflects Paul's eagerness in this passage, to depart and be with Christ. But before we get to this eagerness to die, as morbid as that may seem, we must notice at this point that Paul turns from describing what has been happening for him in the first 18 verses to what is going to happen. Where previously he has written about his past and present experiences, he is now reflecting on his future. And so read with me from verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all shamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is looking towards his future, and in this passage, we begin to understand what shapes Paul's future outlook. He calls this his eager expectation and hope. Paul says, this is my longing, this is my passion, this is the goal for my life. And at the center of Paul's eager expectation and hope is that he would not be ashamed but with full courage now as always that he would honor Christ in his body, whether he lives or dies. Paul's eager expectation and hope is that Christ would be honored, Christ would be magnified, Christ would be glorified regardless of whether he lives or dies. And for Paul, and for us, sorry, Paul is motivating us to have this same outlook. We too are meant to have this ambition. Our eager expectation and hope must be that Christ would be honored whether we live or die. So what does this actually look like? What does honoring Christ in our life and in our death mean? Well, Paul explains what it means in the rest of this chapter. Firstly, in verses 21 to 23, 
he explains what it means to honor Christ in death. And then from verses 23 to 30, what it means to honor Christ in life. In death, we are to honor Christ. And Paul says in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. When we have the mindset that death is gain, then death can result in honoring Christ. Paul reassures us that it is far better to be with Christ. And the reason that death is gain is because to be with Christ is far better than anything we will experience here in this life. And friends, I want you to understand this fact. Our hopes and dreams, our aspirations here and now are insignificant to the future that we will have with Christ after we die. And when we understand this, it also helps us understand what Paul is talking about in this passage and what he says in verse 19. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And the deliverance Paul is talking about here is not from his imprisonment. The deliverance is not from his sufferings, but his eternal deliverance, his eternal salvation. And so regardless of what happens to Paul when he stands before Caesar and is either condemned to death or freed, regardless of what happens to him throughout his life, whether he lives or dies, God ultimately will work out everything for his final salvation and vindication on the last day. And what is remarkable for Paul is that his desire to die had nothing to do with the situation he found himself in. The misconception we make here is that we think it must be better for him to die because of all the hardships he is facing in his life. But Paul is not saying that it is better to die because he is suffering or because he's being tortured or he may end up just rotting in a prison cell. His present suffering is not the reason why it is better to die. And this is the misconception we are so prone to jumping to as well. We oftentimes face our future outlook shaped by our current circumstances, the current experiences we have in our life at the moment. When we face struggles and they just continue to come in our daily life and the trials we face continue to build up or as our muscles get sore and our bones start hurting, what we do is we weigh up all the bad things and we think, well, we've gone through enough and so eventually what we say is to die is gain but this is not the reason 
for Paul's future outlook. It is not because he is imprisoned. It is not because he is tortured. It is not because he suffers that he wants to die. It is because Paul's goal, his eager expectation and hope, is that Christ would be honored. And Paul sees that it's possible for him to honor Christ even in his death. Because in his death, it might be the final way that he glorifies Christ because he has been a faithful witness until the end. And the thing that makes it even better for Paul, the icing on the cake, is that he knows that when he dies, he will be with Christ. And so he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Far better than anything life here has to offer. Far better than our ambitions and our desires. Death is far better because we, what we are experiencing here and now in this world is actually going to be no more except for Christ. And when Christ is superior to everything, even more superior to what we have in this world, when we demonstrate that not only in our life, but also in our death, then we can give him glory. We can exalt him as being higher than anything in this world. And I hope these words of assurance encourage you and bring you joy as well. We all know people who are near death, and you personally may be near death. And you may be grieving the loss of somebody who is close to you that has died recently. Paul reminds us that death is just departing from this place and being with Christ. And there is no question for him that it is far better than anything life here has to offer. And so when we search the scriptures to determine what happens after death and find ourselves frustrated that it leaves so much undescribed, be assured of this central reality. We who are in Christ now, when we die, will be with Christ. And this should bring us joy. For having a personal relationship with Jesus here and now is marvelous. But how much better will it be with him for eternity? And so Paul explains his dilemma. His dilemma is that if his goal is that Christ would be honored not only in his death but also in his life, and to die would be with Christ, then to live, which he calls it to bear fruit, is also honoring Christ. So he says he is hard-pressed between the two. He cannot decide between the two which one is better. Paul has confidence that if he lives, others may grow in Christ, and Christ will be honored and glorified in them. So Paul sees the need for him to remain in ministry and continue his work. He's torn between these two options, 
And what we see is his conviction that remaining with them is more important, that can result in Christ being honored as well. And so he explains this starting in verse 24. He says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so Paul sees it is beneficial for the Philippian church for him to stay. And did you notice Paul's conviction in verse 25? He says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all. Paul's conviction shows his love for his fellow believers and his desire for their spiritual growth. And then at this point in the passage, Paul stops. He's resolved the matter in his mind. And he changes from focusing on himself to focusing on them. It's as if he begins straight away in the very next verse doing exactly what he has just convinced himself he was going to do. It's no longer about Paul, but it's about them. Paul is going to honor Christ by continuing with them in their progress and joy in the faith. Paul is going to give them ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ. And he does it in the very next verse. But before I read verse 27, I want you to know that I think this verse may be the key verse in this whole letter. It actually may be the key verse for the Philippian church. And I believe it could be a key verse for us as a church here today. Read with me verse 27 and verse 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. What an excellent understanding about why we are to partner together for the gospel of Christ. And now, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you look at uh, verse 27, at the word worthy, you might notice that there's a little footnote there, a little number one in my Bible, the footnote. And if you look down the bottom, it actually says that in the Greek, it can also be translated, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's use of this phrase, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, is so significant to the church in Philippi. And I want to explain to you why. And we're going to turn back to Acts chapter 16, which I read last week. Acts chapter 16 was the start of the Philippian church. I started at verse 11. We're going to read verse 11 and 12 again. So I'm at Acts chapter 16, verse 11. 
It says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Acts chapter 16 tells us that Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Roman outpost in the district of Macedonia. It was a city where Roman soldiers actually went after they retired. And because it was a Roman outpost, it was very much considered to be part of Rome, a place for Romans to go to feel as though they were in Rome, even though they weren't. It was a mini Rome of sorts. And this is the point. For Romans living in Philippi, their identity, their citizenship, was from Rome. This meant that their citizenship was somewhere else other than where they currently were at that time. The fact that they were Romans was what defined them, meaning that they were entitled to the, re to the rights and freedoms that others in Philippi did not. And skip down with me in chapter 16 to verse 35 to see the events that played out for Paul. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen who was visiting Philippi. And I find this fascinating. Start reading with me from verse 35. This is just after the jailer had, been had actually been baptized. And this is what happened. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Now Paul, he knew what it meant for him to be a Roman citizen in Philippi. When the magistrates find out that Paul is a Roman citizen, they try and have him released quietly. Why? Because they made the mistake of putting him there in the first place, and they didn't realize that he was a Roman citizen. And so because when they realized they made a mistake, they attempted to have him released quietly, but Paul won't allow it. Paul argues that according to his Roman citizenship, he has been unfairly treated. And so he demands to be recognized as the Roman citizen that he is. Because he has the same rights and the same privileges as a Roman citizen, even though he is in Philippi, as though he was in Rome. Paul understands that a Roman in Philippi can behave as though he were living in Rome. 
And so Paul, when he writes to this Philippian church, as we flip back to Philippians, he uses this phrase to the Philippians. He says, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. They aren't meant to live as worthy Roman citizens. They were to live as worthy Christian citizens. And Paul uses this similar idea throughout this letter, and we'll see it again come up in chapter 3, verse 20. If you look quickly at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants them to know that while they presently live in a Roman colony, they now belong to a heavenly one somewhere else. So live as though your citizenship is in heaven. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their king is no longer Caesar, and their treasure is not in this world. Their king is Jesus Christ, and their treasure is in heaven. And Paul wants these Christians to view the world in that way. And Paul says to them, Know your rights as citizens of heaven. Know who you are as citizens of heaven and behave as citizens of heaven. Paul says, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this idea put before the Philippian church to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ was meant to change their mindset. And it should do the same for us today. It should change our entire view of the world and who we are. We should be proud of the fact that we live in this world, but our citizenship is in heaven, with Christ as our supreme king, and heaven as our future treasure. My eager expectation and hope is that I will never be ashamed, but always Christ would be honored and Christ would be magnified as the one and only true king that I serve and to whom I am accountable to. And so if we're going to say that we are citizens of heaven, then how do we behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's exactly what Paul continues to explain to us in verse 27. He says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Well, it turns out I don't do it on my own. We do it together. We stand firm together, and we do it in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side with each other, not frightened of our opponents. And as we stand together side by side, we will face hostility from those who oppose Jesus. And the reason we face hostility is because we behave as citizens of heaven, citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
and we are a sure sign to those who do not believe in Jesus Christ of their destruction. When our citizenship is no longer here on earth, and we no longer accept the lies and the deceptiveness of this world and look only into our future and our future hope that we have with Christ, we make known to those around us that there is no other name by which we can be saved other than Jesus Christ. And that means that our future is secure. And we long for that day, that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for those who oppose Jesus Christ, it is a futile cause. Their opposition indicates their ultimate destiny. On that day, those who oppose Jesus Christ, whose citizenship is here on earth, their end is destruction. But for us, it is a sure sign of our salvation. And so it's either one or the other. And if you're here today and you have not made the choice to believe in Jesus Christ, I hope you will take time this evening and speak to somebody before you leave here. There is a noticeable difference, a noticeable conflict between what the world is trying to sell us and what we as followers of Jesus Christ believe. And there should be a noticeable conflict between these worldly views and our Christian views. When we listen to what the world says, when it says that we are the center of the universe and that we can achieve heaven here on earth and that we are the makers of our own destiny, we should be on high alert. We should deeply grieve the world's lie about how, what happens when we die or when it argues that there is no God and there is no life after death and we must be willing to take a side. We cannot have our feet in both camps, one in the world's and one with God. And we must be prepared to live for God and realize that that will come at a huge cost while ever we live in this world. Paul wants us to remember whatever we suffer, any conflict that we may face for the sake of the gospel will pale in comparison to what we will receive in our eternal home on that glorious day when we die. Paul's suffering and conflict is realized in the church in Philippi because they are partnering with Paul. Together they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And they are behaving as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I am optimistic that the same could be said for us here today. Let's pray that this would be our mindset also, 
as citizens of heaven standing side by side with Paul and with this Philippian church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Place in us the desire to live as citizens of heaven and not of this world. Help us as a church to stand firm in one gospel, with one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And provide a way that we may not be frightened in anything by our opponents. In your glorious name we pray. Amen.